Hello there and welcome to MA Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny Galarza. Today we're breaking down PFL number five, the 2022 regular season. Coming up on Friday the 24th of June with a 6 p.m. Eastern start time, the event's being held live in Atlanta, Georgia at the Overtime Elite Arena. There'll be 11 total bouts on the card and there's been a ton of changes. I started doing this video breakdown a few days ago and my goodness, it's been torn apart. Some fights were canceled, some, by, some fights were rescheduled. Uh, the order was just shuffled up, I think, 24 hours ago, so the order might be off in the video, which I apologize for. But either way, we'll go over each fight one fight at a time. Some fights in more depth than others because some of the late replacements were just too late in the week and really couldn't do a deep dive. And some of the fights are also just so one-sided, like the main event with Bruno Capeloso against Matthias Shuffle. Bruno Capeloso is going to mollywop this poor young man in the first round, probably early in the first round, like within the first minute or so. Bruno Capeloso is just a mean monster. So some of the fights in this card, unfortunately, are quite off-balance, especially the one that were late replacements. We'll go over each one one at a time. Most of the books are offering this fight. It's on DraftKings, it's on FanDuel, just about any book you look out there has PFL fights. So if you like betting on mixed martial arts, the PFL is a good promotion to consider. And with that said, let's jump into the card. Here we the go. first fight to open the premium card is going to be a featherweight battle at 145 pounds between Alejandro Flores from Mexico and Ryoji Kudo from Japan. Kudo's 10-3-1 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. He hails out of Tokyo, Japan, 29 years old, 5'7 in height. We do not have a reach number on him. Having watched some of his prior fights, his arms are a bit short, so I'm going to imagine he's have a significant reach disadvantage in this fight where he's a shorter fighter. He trains out of Tribe Tokyo MMA. As for Mr. Flores, who goes by El Galito, he's 21-3 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. He's based out of Monterrey, Mexico, 31 years old, 5'9 in height with a 73-inch reach. He trains at a VFS Academy, which is a very good gym in Mexico. As for the votes on Tapology, Flores is the big favorite, getting 82% of the votes, only 18% coming in for the Japanese fighter. I totally agree. I like Flores. I think Kudo had a really good fight in his last fight against Brandon Laughlin, which we'll talk about, and he has some punching power. But over the course of three rounds, Flores does a good job of avoiding big punches, working at distance, good grappling game, very well balanced. Probably a guy that's like on the cusp of a UFC level talent. Had a chance at the Dana Contender Series and came up a little bit short. But a guy that I like a lot in the PFL and will definitely make a run in this division at some point. Now looking at the background of these two fighters. Alejandro Flores went pro in 2013. He fought in combate and icon prior to the PFL. He lost the Dana White Contender Series in 2020 to Rafael Alves, who's currently in the UFC. And he trains at an amazing gym. VFS Academy is probably the number one or number two gym in Mexico. He fought Rafael Alves in 2020 on Dana White Contender Series, lost via round two submission. He was a plus 100 slight underdog in that fight, so it was a pick him. Alves is currently 1-1 one in one of the UFC. Now, in that fight, he looks good in round one and looked good in round two. In round one specifically, he starts doing damage to the lead leg of Alves, and that's one of his most dangerous tools. He does good damage to the lead leg of his opponent. In round two, Alves just sort of kind of comes in and sneakily jumps up on him and grabs a guillotine on the feet. They go to the ground. The guillotine's pretty deep. He does try to fight it for a while. Eventually, he taps out and gets the loss. But prior to that moment, he looked pretty good, was working at distance and definitely doing some significant damage to the lead leg of Rafael Alves. Now, Rafael Alves, who's one and one of the UFC, is a bona fide UFC prospect. So that was a good fight for him in terms of that he didn't get like knocked out and overrun. It was a submission. It happens. He got caught. Learning experience. Now, the things I like about Alejandro Flores, he works great at distance, very good at measuring his range, good jabs, good leg kicks, and again, does a lot of damage to the lead leg of his opponent. He has much more octagon experience than his opponent in this matchup, and so from an experience standpoint, I give him a big edge for this fight. He's also a very active fighter. This will be a second fight this year. He fought twice last year and twice in 2020. Now, my concerns for Alejandro Flores, he does not have a signature win just yet. His most difficult opponent was Javier Alves, but he lost that fight. Other than that, fighting guys that are just okay level, average level guys, you know what I mean? Doesn't have a name on the, on the topology where you're like, like, oh, he's got that win. He's also displayed poor submission defense. Obviously, in the Alves fight, that one fight in a vacuum, it wasn't like he was fighting submissions off for the course of a round or two. They were on the feet, and he just gives up bad position, and he was the one taking down Alves in that moment. You know how that works when a guy's taking down an opponent, got his head underneath the arm, next thing you know, he gets choked out with a guillotine. That's what happened. So I need to see him defend himself against submissions moving forward to kind of convince me that he's actually good at submission defense. And lastly, he's got a very low finish rate. Six of his last seven fights have gone to decision, so he doesn't have much punching power. Reminds me a little bit of Calvin Cater, who we just saw fight this past weekend against Emmett. He lost a fight, good close fight, did a lot of damage to Emmett, but never hit him with like an amazing punch. A lot of jabs, a lot of soft punches, and that's a little bit the way that Alejandro Flores fights. And that could be one of the things about him that could be costly if he fights an opponent who does land some bigger shots and he ends up losing a round or two because he's tapping his opponent and not landing with a lot of power. And again, numbers wise, it shows that six of his last seven fights have gone to decision. Now, as for the Japanese fighter, Mr. Kudo, he's from Japan. He fought most of his fights in the Far East in Japanese promotions. He fought for one Warrior Series and Shudo part of the PFL. He lost his PFL debut two months ago to Lofnane via a close to 
decision, a fight that could have gone either way, and a fight where he knocks down Brandon Lofton in round one. So, you know, looking at a guy who came into that fight as like a plus, I don't know, plus 700 underdog, he came in there and made it very close and barely lost the fight. He fights out of an orthodox boxing stance, and he's coming into this matchup off of back-to-back -back decision losses. Now, his last opponent, Brandon Laughlin, he lost that fight earlier this year. He was a plus 750 underdog. He dropped Laughlin in round one with some nice combinations. He doesn't throw straight punches. Everything for him is looping and pretty hard. So if he catches you in the chin, like he caught Brandon, you're gonna go down. He did get a nasty headbutt in round three, which ends up stopping the fight. So now the judges have to go to the scorecards. In my opinion, he won round one. Round two, it's just really close. Lofty didn't do anything special. It goes to the scorecards early in round three. I didn't use all three rounds, not sure. Nonetheless, it ends up going to Brandon Lofty by decision. The crowd actually starts to boo. Now, Lofton's a bit of a fan favorite, but even the crowd there thought the Japanese fighter won. It was very close, again, a plus 750 underdog, and he was clearly being overlooked by the books coming into that fight. And his prior fight against Sasu, 2021 decision loss. Now, Sasu's a solid Japanese fighter. He's 9-2-1 overall, hasn't fought in any big promotions, but an overall pretty good fighter, coming off of back-to-back -back decision losses in two fights against pretty good opponents. Now, the things I like about the Japanese fighter, number one, displayed punching power against Brandon Lofton. It wasn't a fluke knockdown. He definitely clips Lofton, knocks him down, so he's got some punching power. He also has a very solid chin, never been finished in his entire career. And for what it's worth, in his PFL debut, it wasn't too big of a stage for him. The lights weren't too bright. He came out, got settled in early, knocks down Lofton, fought a very good fight, and accidental headbutt in round three is what cost the fight to stop early. Who knows what happens if it goes to the full distance. He looked like he had Brandon Lofton's number on that fight, was doing a good job. If that fight had gone the full distance, he probably could have won. So it's more of a bit of a bad luck situation for him in his PFL debut. It wasn't like he wasn't ready for the opportunity. Now, one big question mark I do have about Kudo is his grappling. I didn't see any grappling, and I haven't seen it on film. He's built like a wrestler. He has the shorter arm a little bit stockier, but I didn't see him do any grappling. He seems to be the kind of fighter where he likes to fight more on the feet. So I imagine most of the fight will be on the feet because Flores also likes to fight on the feet. And if there was some grappling going on, Flores is good at grappling. Not amazing, but good. But for Kudo, I haven't seen it on a film. That's a big question mark for me when it comes to Kudo. Now, my concerns for Kudo, number one, he throws very wide punches, not wild, but they're just wide, nothing down the middle. And as he throws them, they're like both going at the same time. That leaves him open for a counter right down the middle. Flores is a very good striker, more technical than Kudo, and does throw straight down the pipe. I can see some situations where as Kudo's leaning in, he likes to lean in and throw. He has to close distance. He's got the shorter range. He will leave himself wide open for some counters down the middle. Now, his chin's pretty good, never been finished, and Flores doesn't punch very hard. From a points perspective, from a winning and the judges' scorecards perspective, that should be an opportunity there for Flores. And even though Kudo did knock down Lofton in his last fight, and I think he's got some punching power, his numbers don't really show that. Five of his last seven fights have gone to decision. He's coming off back-to-back -back decision losses. Now, before the last two decision losses, he did have back-to-back -back finishes. So it's kind of tough for me to gauge his finishing power. Having watched him again knock down Lofton, I think he's got some power, but the numbers don't really show that. So it's kind of, again, a question mark for me by the Japanese fighter. Does he have enough power here to knock out Flores? You know, Flores is a Mexican fighter. They tend to have pretty good chins. I don't think Kudo's going to knock out Flores. I think if he wins the fight, it's most likely by decision. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Flores versus Bellagi from this year, Flores versus Alves from 2020, and Kudo versus Lofton from 2020. If you want to watch anyone else's three fights as part of our free video library, in the description, you're going to see those three links available. My final few thoughts on these two fighters. Experience-wise, I get the advantage to Flores. He's fought more fights and fought the better caliber of opponent. Cardio, they both check out. They both go the distance. Neither guy's a big finisher. They both look pretty good at the end of the fights. So I'd say cardio-wise, they both check out. Finishing ability, neither guy's a very good finisher. We talked about this, so I don't expect to finish. I think the fight does go to distance. For striking, I give the edge to Flores. He's the more technical striker. Again, reminds me of exactly the fight we just watched against Calvin Cater and Joshua Emmett. Emmett's the more powerful guy, throwing big looping shots. That's what Kudo does. Flores, like Cater, is the more technical guy. We'll see how it works out over the course of three rounds, and we'll see how the judges look at it, but Flores should land the more accurate strikes and more often, whereas Kudo will land the bigger bombs at times. And as for grappling, that's an area we're just not really sure about. For Flores, he's decent at it. He's got some holes, as we talked about. And for Kudo, just a question mark. The prop I like the most for this fight is the fight going to decision. I think at some point, you could see somebody getting hurt. In the case of Kudo, I worry even if he does hurt Flores, his actual finishing ability, his actual DNA to finish a fight doesn't seem to be there. For Flores, just doesn't punch hard enough. It'd have to be like a submission win against a guy like Kudo who's built very stocky, doesn't have much in the neck. So to me, it looks like it's going to decision no matter how you look at it. At minus 167, I love Flores on the money line. I'll be betting him straight up with a lot of confidence, at least for one full unit, and I have enough confidence in him to actually parlay him. For Kudo, good first showing in his first PFL fight. I don't want to take anything away from him, but he has some disadvantages, and Flores has a ton more experience against much better fighters. So I like Flores to open the card up with a win. 
by decision. That's your breakdown. Okay, next up we have a featherweight bout at 145 pounds between Brandon Lofnane from England and Ago Huskik from Bosnia. This is another last minute change in the card. Boston Salmon was supposed to fight Brandon Lofnane initially, but Salmon had to withdraw. I'll tell you what, I was choosing Salmon as a possible dog in that matchup, someone to consider. Even though I thought Lofnane should win the fight, I thought Salmon had a chance. In this matchup, there is no chance for Husik. He's a late replacement. He's eight and four, Bosnian fighter, has very little experience, has fought low level promotions, has no experience in the PFL or Bellator or high level promotions like M1. His highest level fight was in LFA and he lost that fight. He's also on a two fight losing streak. His last fight was in Anthony Pettis' promotion in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm happy for the fact that Brandon Lofnane gets a chance to fight, but this guy is not a very good opponent. Now, interestingly enough, if Lofnane wins the fight, he gets points towards making the playoffs, right? This guy, Ago Huskik, is literally just a late replacement coming here just to fill some shoes. He has no chance to make the playoffs. He's not qualified for the playoffs. I'm thankful for the PFL. I love the PFL. But here's an example of how you have a low-level promotion like the PFL who's working their way up. When they have a last-minute opening in their card, they're filling that with a very, very low-level guy. For Brandon Lofnane, he's lucky. He's getting served up a very low-level opponent. I thought Boston Salmon, a former UFC-level fighter, could have at least given him some challenges here and there. When the money line does come out, it's going to be Brandon Lofnane, like minus 1,000. I'm not going to touch it, and I won't touch it for the same reasons we talked about in our first breakdown when we broke down Lofnane versus Salmon. In the last fight for Brandon Lofnane, he did not look very good. He looked a little old. He looked a little bit slow. Just didn't look himself. Didn't look like the guy that I remember from back in the day. And with that said, I'm not confident to bet behind him, especially if it's minus 1,000, minus 800, something like that, which I think it will be. But for Huskick, wrong place, wrong time. Thanks for being here. I'm going to take Brandon Lofnane to win the fight. Probably by decision. Alrighty, next fight in the card is going to be a featherweight bout at 145 pounds between Sir Lance Palmer and Shimon Moraes from Brazil. Moraes is 14 and 5 overall, 3 and 2 in his last five fights. He comes into this fight as a slight underdog at plus 130. 31 years old, 5 foot 8 in height with a 72 inch reach. He trades out of Team Nogara and Black House MMA. As for Lance Palmer, who goes by the party, he's 22 and 6 overall, 2 and 3 in his last five fights. A favorite here at minus 160 in the money line. He's from Sacramento, California, 35 years old, 5 foot 6 in height with a 69 inch reach. And he trades out of a very good gym called Team Alpha Male. Now, looking at the numbers in topology, Palmer is the slight favorite, getting 61% of the votes and 39% of the votes coming in from Marias. I don't agree. I think Marias has a chance to win the fight. I like Lance Palmer. I like him even better about three, four years ago. The guy has kind of run into a rough patch, and I think in his older years, is starting to show some of the wear and tear of an older fighter. My biggest critique of him is I feel like he doesn't want to mix it up anymore. And that's maybe a trait of a fighter who's been through some wars, had some damage, and now is thinking about life beyond fighting. And I'm not suggesting I know that. It just somewhat appears that way on a three-fight losing streak. And again, over those fights, has been hesitant at times. Does not want to mix it up. Doesn't want to get into a wild brawl. Now, looking at the background of these two fighters, Lance Palmer was born in Ohio, four-time state champion in Ohio for wrestling. His high school career was actually part of a documentary called Pinned. It's a wrestling movie. He wrestled Division One at Ohio State for four years, a four-time All-American. He was a runner-up, second place at NCAA Championships his senior year. Some of his most notable college wins were against some big-time wrestlers. For example, he beat future Olympian Jordan Burroughs twice in college. He also beat future Olympian Frank Molinaro in college. And he also defeated Bubba Jenkins, who's a PFL fighter who's on this card. And Bubba Jenkins went on to win NCAA championships. And he also beat two-time NCAA champion Brent Metcalf. So he's beat some amazing guys in college while he was wrestling the creme de la creme. Guys that are like Olympic-level wrestlers. When it comes to wrestling, you're thinking, this guy is going to be an amazing wrestler. Just hold on to that thought for a second. We'll get back to that. His wrestling record in college was 121-33 and at Ohio State. He made his pro debut in 2011. He's been a pro for about 12 years. He's a brown belt BJJ. He's coming into this fight in a three-fight losing streak, has not had his hand raised in three years. I mentioned he trained at Team Alpha Male, but he's actually changed gyms. He's now based out of Tom River, New Jersey, where he trains out of Nick Katona MMA. He did train in the past at Extreme Couture and Team Alpha Male. As for some of his prior opponents, his last fight, Chris Wade, earlier this year, lost by decision. He was a minus 115 pick'em. He simply got outworked on the ground and on the feet. This will go to a theme that I'm kind of bringing up. This will go to a reoccurring theme I'm going to talk about with Lance Palmer. He doesn't mix it up enough. He's backing up, working off of his back foot, doesn't push the pace, and doesn't wrestle. That's my biggest frustration with him, which we'll talk more about. His prior fight before Wade, Movit Kobalayev, 2021 decision loss. On one side, decision loss against a very good fighter who obviously went on to win last year the entire $1 million prize in that division. He was a plus 110 pick him in that fight, and once again, got out-wrestled and got outworked. And the key word, out-wrestle. A guy who's scratching the surface of possibly being an Olympic-level wrestler doesn't wrestle very well, at least not in his last few fights. And his prior fight, an old foe, Bubba Jenkins, he fought him last year, lost the fight by decision, came in as a minus 380 favorite. And once again, what happened? Got out-wrestled. 
on the feet, doesn't push pace, will not mix it up, is tentative about engaging with his opponent. Now, some things I do like about Lance Palmer. Number one, very durable. He's only been finished one time in a total of 28 mixed martial arts fights, and that was by submission about 10 years ago. He's fought some very good competition. If you look at the last 10 fights for him on his topology, all decent level mixed martial arts fighters. Some guys not maybe elite level, maybe not UFC level, but solid overall competition throughout the course of his career. He's a very smart fighter with tremendous cardio. He balances himself over the course of a fight, doesn't overextend himself. Now my critiques of Lance Palmer, not a very good finisher. 10 of his last 11 fights have gone a decision. He hasn't had a finish in over three years, and that suggests to me he lacks punching power and obviously doesn't have a good submission skill game. He's a very good fighter, very well balanced, but the reality is he does not have finishing ability. We mentioned before, he's coming in here on a three fight losing streak. He's never had a three fight losing streak in his entire career. If he loses right now, a fourth fight in a row, this could signal the end of his run in the PFL. And I mentioned this before, it's simply a theory. I don't have any proof of it, but my theory is that he's a little bit gun shy right now. At 35 years old, it seems as if he's trying to avoid serious damage. Like he doesn't want to mix it up. He wants to win the fight, preferably by points. Again, 10 decisions in his last 11 fights, but doesn't want to get really seriously damaged and seems to be thinking life beyond mixed martial arts. It's natural, he's 35, been doing it for a long time, 28 total mixed martial arts fights. You heard Rose Namajunas recently give an interview with Ariel Hawani where she talked about, hey, can I have a fight sometimes, but I don't get super beat up and damaged. These are just people, they're human. Could it be right now that he's fighting a little more cautious than he was before because he's thinking about life beyond mixed martial arts and doesn't wanna get damaged? It looks that way at times. Now, as for Shimon Marias, a Brazilian fighter, he was born and raised in Brazil. He started mixed martial arts at the age of 12 years old with judo, then quickly included BJJ and Muay Thai. He fought at a very high level in kickboxing before moving on to mixed martial arts. He has a purple belt in judo, a black belt in BJJ, and a brown belt in kickboxing. He went pro in 2012. He's been a pro for 10 years. He went two and three in the UFC before they cut him in 2019. He is currently three and one in the PFL with his only loss against Brandon Lofning, and he's currently on a three fight winning streak coming off of a decision win in his last fight against Boston Salmon. His last fight was against Boston Salmon, Earlier this year, he won the fight by decision. He was a minus 190 favorite. Some of his prior opponents, he fought Julio Arce, 2018, split decision win, and arguably the biggest win of his career. Arce is 18-5 overall and currently in the UFC where he's on a winning streak. He also fought Sadiq Youssef, lost that fight by decision, 2019. Andre Feely, 2019, decision loss, also in the UFC. So while in the UFC, didn't notch a bunch of wins, but when he did lose, it wasn't like he got finished. He was able to get through a full fight. And then Zabit Magomed Sharapov. In this fight, he does get finished. Round three submission loss while in the UFC way back 2017. Tough loss, tough opponent. You can't be ashamed of getting submitted by a guy who's a submission guru like Magomed Sharapov. Those are some of his fights in the UFC. A bit of a rough run and some very good fighters. And then prior to the UFC, he fought Marlon Marias, 2015 round three submission loss in WSFO 20. Now, some things I like about Shimon Marias. He's fought very good competition over the course of his career and maybe even the better competition over the last 10 fights or so compared to Palmer. He has a lot of power in his hands and when he has his opponent hurt, he will load up and land some killer shots. He doesn't have tremendous finishing ability, but he does have finishing ability. For example, of his 14 wins, almost half of them, six have been a finish. And two of his last three wins have been finishes. Now, it may be hard for him to finish a guy like Sir Lance Palmer, who's very durable, only been finished one time in 28 mixed martial arts fights. But again, Shimon Marias does have finishing ability. Now, some of my critiques of Shimon Marias. Number one, the finishing ability. We just talked about how he has some finishing ability. On the flip side, four of his last six wins have been by decision. So when it comes to finishing again, not an amazing finisher, and against an opponent here, Lance Palmer, who doesn't get finished very often, this fight most likely goes to decision. He also has some potential durability issues. He's been finished in four of his five losses and been TKO'd in his last two defeats. If you look back at the film against Brandon Lofton when he gets knocked out in that fight, that is like burned in my head. That was a tough knockout. He's completely out of it. Terrible knockout. I mean, he didn't take a lot of damage in that fight, but it was a bad knockout. And in that moment, you have to wonder yourself, is he a little bit chinny? Again, against a guy like Lance Palmer who doesn't mix it up, not a heavy hitter, low finish rate, probably Probably shouldn't be an issue, but I'm just putting it out there. In prior fights, you gotta wonder about Shimon Marias' chin. And my last concern for Marias, he gets a little sloppy when he gets fatigued. Now that goes for all fighters, right? For him in particular, you get to late round two, round three. If he feels a little bit of pressure, if he starts mixing it up with his opponent, he gets sloppy. Now Lance Palmer will not get sloppy. He'll back up, he'll disengage, keep a high guard. Shimon Marias, as he gets fatigued, his hands come down low, he starts swinging from the hips, he gets a little sloppy. I could see him losing part of a round that way because Lance Palmer is a little bit more clean. Maybe Lance Palmer does revert back to the wrestling, but the bottom line is when Shimon Marais gets a little fatigued, he can get very sloppy. We watched six total fights to bring down this film. We watched Palmer versus Kubalaya from last year, Palmer versus Wade from earlier this year, and Palmer from Jenkins from last year. We also watched Marias versus Stogdanovich from last year, Marias versus Lofnane from last year, and Marias versus Magomed Sharapov from 2017. If you want to watch any one of those six fights as part of our free video library, just take a gander down below here on YouTube, look down below. In the description, you're going to see those six links available. My final few thoughts on these two fighters. They're similar in age, but Lance Palmer at 
35 years old is a little hesitant at times, does not seem to want to mix it up and getting a little bit too cautious. They both train at excellent gyms. As for fighting experience, Palmer has fought more mixed martial arts fights, but Marias has been in there with some better fighters and had a stint in the UFC. So for fighter experience, I give him about the same grade. For fighter IQ, also very similar. Neither guy is a dumb fighter. They both fight very smart. They make good decisions in the octagon and they're both well balanced. For cardio, I give a slight edge to Palmer and that's because of the way he fights. Doesn't engage too much, doesn't throw any very powerful shots. For Marias, over the course of three rounds, you'll see him try some powerful stuff. You'll see him at times get a little bit of depletion in his cardio. Now he can bounce back. He's shown good cardio over the course of three rounds, but compare them side by side. Palmer, to me, has the better cardio. For finishing ability, I give the edge to Marias. We talked about that already. For Lance Palmer, 10 of his last 11 fights have gone to decision. Very limited finishing ability. For striking, very similar. Marias, remember, has a kickboxing background, Muay Thai background. Good striking. Lance Palmer, though he has a wrestling background, has very good striking ability, has learned to be a very good striker. So striking-wise, very similar. For grappling, I should give the edge to Lance Palmer. The question in this fight is going to be, does he wrestle? If he wrestles Shamo Marias, he will win the fight. But he did do that in his last fight, or the prior fight, or the prior fight before that. Matter of fact, in those three fights before this, he got out-wrestled himself. He's the better wrestler on paper than Marias. He should be able to wrestle him. But to do that, he's going to have to drop a level and get his head in some danger, put his nose in the grind, get this guy down, single leg, double leg. He's got to actually commit to that and do that. I fear that in round two, round three, if he's not successful in round one, he'll abandon that altogether. So from the grappling perspective, I do give Palmer an edge, but he has to actually use that edge. Morales is not a terrible grappler, but he's not nearly as good of a wrestler. And lastly, who has more heart? When it comes to heart, I give the edge to Marias. And because of what I talked about, I think Lance Palmer in some ways is mentally packing it in. He wants to win the fights. Yes, he's a veteran. I'm not questioning this guy's manhood, amazing career, solid wrestling career in college, the whole nine. But when you watch him on film right now, what I'm seeing from him on film right now, he's tentative. He doesn't want to engage. So when it comes to who has more heart, who has more passion, who's going to go in there and be more willing to fall on their sword, I'm going to give that edge to Shamil Marias. And I think we might see that in the fight. I think when we get to round two or three, if it's close, you can see Marias taking more risks, moving forward, pushing the pace, and Lance Palmer working off his back foot and being hesitant. And if that happens at plus 130, I like Shamil Marias to win the fight. I like Lance Palmer overall. I think Shamil Marias has some chinks in the armor, which we've talked about. But from a betting perspective, if I had to bet in the fight, which I probably might take a little sprinkle on this, I'm going to bet on Shamil Marias to win the fight. The prop I like the most of this fight, the fight going to decision. We talked about it. Neither guy's an amazing finisher, especially in the case of Sir Lance Palmer, very limited finishing ability. And for Shamil Marias, not an amazing finisher against a guy like Lance Palmer, who's only been finished one time in 28 total fights. So the fight most likely goes to decision. If you like Lance to win the fight, take him by decision. It's going to be pick a money on the money line. It'll be plus money as a decision prop. And the same thing for Marias. If you like him to win the fight, it's most likely by decision. He's plus 130 money line. He'll be around plus 210 to plus 225 by decision. And that's your breakdown, guys. We'd like the Brazilian fighter Shimon Marias to win. The okay, fight. next up on the prelim card, Bubba Jenkins versus Ronaldo Exkin. This was another last minute change on the card. Jenkins was supposed to fight against Saba Balaji. We did a whole breakdown of that fight, spent a bunch of time on it, did a bunch of research, and last minute we find out there's a change. Kind of sucks, work gone out the window, or work wasted, but uh, for this last minute replacement, Jenkins should win the fight. I'm not gonna give a full breakdown of both fighters. We know about Jenkins, long history in wrestling, national championship wrestler, has had a nice run in the PFL, probably has a chance this year to win the whole thing. For Ronaldo Exxon, we don't know much about him, but he has a good record, 18-5, Brazilian grappler, wrestler, on a winning streak, but hasn't really fought tough competition, has one PFL win. As a last minute replacement against Bubba Jenkins, I'm not worried. He also is not much younger. You think of Jenkins at like 34, 35. Exxon is 33 in his own right, so I expect Bubba Jenkins to do what he does. Grapple, wrestle, maybe win by decision. That's what he likes to do. Not a lot of power in his hands, and Bubba Jenkins, if there's one thing about him I don't like, sometimes has a little bit of a cardio issue. Sometimes, but has a way to work through that. So round one, round two tends to do very well. Round three can slow down a bit. Long story short, I like Jenkins to win the fight. There's no money lines available yet. I imagine when it opens up, he's going to be a big favorite, like minus 400 to minus 500. It makes sense. I'll parlay him with some confidence. Now, if you're looking for a wild card to bet on, Ronaldo Exxon would be that guy. He is a pretty good fighter, has a good record, has won his first PFL fight. So if you're looking for dogs, Exxon would be the guy. But I'm going to stick with Bubba Jenkins as our pick. I like Jenkins to win the fight by... Next up, we have Sam Key versus Juan Adams in a heavyweight bout. Now, Sam Key was initially supposed to fight Dennis Golsoff, but he was rebooked. He's now fighting Maurice Green. Sam Key stays in a car, but he's now fighting Juan Adams. Juan Adams comes in here as a late addition to this card. He's 9-4 overall. For one of his last five fights, he's based out of Houston, Texas. He goes by the Kraken. 30 years old, six foot five. 81 inch reach. He trains out of Paradigm Training Center. As for Sam K9 Key, he's 8 and 5 overall, 4 1 in his last 5 fights. He's out of Sydney, Australia, and he's of Tongan 
nationality. He's six foot three in height with a seventy four point eight inch reach. He trains out of Spike twenty two, so a slight height and reach advantage there for Juan Adams. We do not have an age number on Sam Key, but I believe he's about thirty years old, so probably similar in age to his opponent. I'm gonna give an edge here to Juan Adams to win the fight, just because I don't have a lot of faith in Sam Key. Had Sam Key fought Dennis Golsloff, it's gonna probably be a pretty easy win there for Golsloff. The money line's not out yet for this fight, but when it does get dropped, I imagine Juan Adams will be a significant favorite. I'm not gonna bet on it. It's a lot of variables. I don't trust either fighter. Juan Adams coming in here, late replacement, could have been in shape, could have not been in shape. It's heavyweight. You imagine the fight probably ends early. If you want to take a prop bet, take the fight goes under two and a half or the fight does not go the distance. Otherwise, don't touch it. I'm going to choose Juan Adams to win the fight. Let's move Next on. up, we have a heavyweight battle at 265 pounds between Maurice Green, who goes by the Crochet Boss, versus Dennis Golsloff, who goes by the Russian Bogatar. The Russian Bogatar is 3-2 and two in his last five fights, 28-7 overall. He hails out of St. Petersburg, Russia, 32 years old, 6-5 in high with a 78-inch reach. He trains out of Sambo Petir. As for Maurice Green, 10-6 overall, 2-3 in his last five fights. He's based out of Illinois, 35 years old, 11 months, so about to be 36. Kind of surprising. I think of Maurice Green from the Ultimate Fighter show a few years ago, and uh, he just seems like he's a younger fighter. But yeah, about to be 36 years old. Not too old for heavyweight, though, still in his prime. 6-7 in high with an 82-inch reach. He trains out of the Performance Compound. So the height and reach will be an advantage for Maurice Green. When it comes to their fighting styles, Maurice Green is a striker, long range, good boxer, heavy hands. Dennis Golsov, a typical Russian fighter where he's balanced, good on the ground, likes to wrestle, likes to grapple, has some submission ability, and that's where he'll try to win the fight. So this fight was put together last minute. We had Dennis Golsov initially scheduled to fight Sam Key. He was rebooked now to fight Maurice Green. I'm actually happy about the change because for Dennis Golsov, Sam Key was not going to be much of a matchup. Now he gets to fight a guy who's a decent level heavyweight, a guy who is a UFC level prospect, who's got good hands, will at least be better of a challenge for him on the feet. I still think Dennis wins the fight. Again, on the ground will have a big advantage here, and it's a better overall fighter, I believe, but Marine Green will always have the proverbial puncher's chance, and it is the heavyweight division, so one punch can change it all. But for Dennis Golsov, the guy's pretty durable, has shown that in recent past, went to the playoffs last year in the PFL, lost to Ante Delizia by decision, but for Dennis Golsov, look, the guy is still in his prime years at 32 years old, a very good wrestler grappler, probably good enough to be in the UFC at this point in his career, and I imagine him being in the semifinals, if not the finals, to win the heavyweight title for the PFL in 2022. Now, if there's one criticism I do have for Dennis Golsov, it's his topology. There's not many noticeable names on there. The biggest opponents you can see are guys like Ante Delizia, who he lost to, Mo Derice, he beat him, Ali Iziev, he lost to Ali Iziev, the guy who keeps backing out, was supposed to be in this card, he's now off the card. So not much competition. Now against okay competition, guys like Cody Goodell, guys like Brandon Sales, guys like Mo Derice, he looks pretty good. But against Ante Delizia, not so much. I believe in this fight, he has enough to beat Maurice Green. But I'm a little hesitant here to actually bet on Golslav. He'd probably be the favorite, rightfully so. But can Maurice Green come in here and test him in a few areas? Has Maurice Green gotten a little better at the grappling? I'm going to choose Dennis Golslav to win the fight. The line's not available just yet because this is a last-minute addition to the card. It's probably coming out with him around minus 200-ish range favorite. I'm going to choose him to win. And if you're looking for an underdog to get behind, I think Maurice Green's one of the guys to at least consider. That's your breakdown. And yet another change to the card. Another heavyweight battle. Ante Delizia versus Elton Graves. Now, Delisha was supposed to fight Stuart Austin. Stuart Austin backed out. I'm thinking that some of these fighters are backing out because they know they have a chance to make the playoffs. They're probably thinking, you know what? I need more time to recover. Maybe they have their eyes on another promotion. But Stuart Austin, who's looked very poor in recent fights in the PFL, Maybe decide, you know what, I'm not getting my way in this promotion. I'm not going to make the playoffs. I'm just going to back out. Or maybe need more time after the last knockout. Nonetheless, this PFL 5 card is being pulled apart by the seams with a lot of changes last minute. So Ante Delicia is going to now fight against Shelton Graves. Delicia is 20-5 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. He hails out of Croatia, 31 years old in 10 months, so about to be 32. 6-5 in high with a 79-inch reach. He trades out of Gladiator, Croatia. As for Shelton Graves, who goes by the Grave Digger, he's 9-5 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. Out of Baltimore, Maryland, 36 years old, 6-2 in high with a 70 inch reach he trains out of top flight mma so the height and reach advantage will go on the side of Ante Delizia, along with the experience advantage. Obviously, only 14 total fights for Shelton Graves versus 25 for Ante Delizia. Now, Delizia has been around the PFL the last few years, made a good run last year, and eventually ended up losing in the finals to Bruno Capeloza by decision, but still made a good run last year. And I expect him to make a run this year as well in the playoffs. He's coming off of a win earlier this year in April. We had a round two knockout over Matthias Scheffel. So I believe he earned enough points in that victory to put him in prime spot to make the playoffs. Now, over the last few years for Ante Delizia, the only kryptonite for him has been Bruno Capeloza. Looking back all the way to 2015 was the last time that he lost to somebody else besides Bruno Capeloza. His last three losses have been Bruno Capeloza twice and then Marcin Tybura. Only losing to high-level guys, has a lot of experience, and still at this age is in his prime years as a heavyweight. As for Shelton Graves, a lot of unknowns. I have to point out the big issue with him. Cardio, cardio, and cardio. 
Look at his topology. He goes to round one, round two at the latest. If you watch him on film, in round three, he's just about harmless. <laughs> he can't do much. The power is gone. He's coming into this fight from back-to-back -back losses where he got finished within two rounds via TKO, so I don't expect much from him. Ante Delicia probably walks through him. The money line's not available just yet. It's probably going to be a big money line favorite for Delicia, like minus 500 to minus 600. I wouldn't touch it. Maybe it's a parlay piece, but there's not a lot of value there. In the case of Shelton Graves, thank you for showing up, buddy. We appreciate your service, but Delicia's going to run through him. I'm glad the PFL's around. I like this organization, but there is definitely a lack of talent. And this PFL 5 event is a good reminder that, look, their talent level is like down here compared to the UFC. And when you have a last minute guy popping into the card, you're talking about very low level MMA. So expect some quick finishes on the PFL 5 card and expect this fight to be one of them. I'm going to choose Ante Delicia to win here by brute force, knocking out Shelton Graves probably within round one or round two. That's your pick. Guys. Moving on up the main card, we've got Chris Wade versus Kyle Bochniak, two American fighters in the featherweight division. Kyle Bochniak goes by Crash, 11 and 6 overall, 3 and 2 in his last five fights. A big dog here, plus 300 at the winning line. He's out of Boston, Massachusetts, 35 years old, 5'7 in height with a 70 inch reach. He trains out of Lauzo Mixed Martial Arts and Broadway Jiu Jitsu. As for Chris Wade, who goes by the Long Island Killer, who hails out of Long Island and trains out of Long Island MMA, he's 21 and 7 overall, 4 1 his last five fights. A big favorite here at minus 410 on the money line, 34 years old, 5'10 in height with a 70 inch reach. So there'll be a slight height advantage for Chris Wade, but they both have the same reach. According to the public votes, Wade is a big favorite, getting 95% of the votes, which matches up with the money line. I do agree. I like Wade to win the fight. Kyle Bochniak, he's a bit of a roughneck. The guy had a run in the UFC, tough fighter, fought a war with to beat Magomed Sharapov, so he's always gained the fight, but Chris Wade has him outmatched in just about every department, and Chris Wade's a tough dude who's got a chin, so even if Kyle Bochniak does land a few hard punches, Chris Wade should be able to weather the storm. Now looking at the background of these two fighters, Chris Wade, born in New York, former state champion at 140 pounds in high school. He attended Nassau Junior College in Long Island out of high school, where he was a finalist at Nationals his freshman year. After moving on from Nassau Community College, he transferred to Division Three SUNY Oneonta, where he finished fifth place at Nationals. He's a blue belt in BJJ. He was a very accomplished kickboxer before mixed martial arts. He went undefeated in kickboxing and actually held a world title. He went 2-0 as an amateur. He went 5-2 in the UFC before they let him go in 2017 after his win over Frankie Perez. Kind of a rough situation, right? 5-2 in the UFC. He finishes off with a win and they still let him go. He's currently 8-4 in the PFL with all of his losses to quality opponents and he fights out of a southpaw stance. His last fight was earlier this year against Lance Palmer, where he won by decision. He was a minus 105 pick'em. His prior fight, Movi Kobolayev, last year lost by decision. Now, Kobolayev is 19-0-1 overall. Very good prospect. He beat Bubba Jenkins last year by decision. And Jenkins is a very good fighter at 16-5 overall. He has two losses to Natan Schulte back in 2018 by decision. One was by split decision. Natan Schulte, another very good fighter. 21-5-1 overall record. And he got out-wrestled in that fight. It was a very close fight. And last fight to mention, a name you guys will recognize, Islam Makachev. They fought back in 2016, and he lost to Islam Makachev by decision. Now, Makachev is 22-1 overall, a killer on the ground, a submission master, and yet Chris Wade went the full distance with him. Now, the things I like about Chris Wade, number one, as we talked about, has fought championship-level opponents, guys like Islam Makachev. He has excellent durability, and even though he's fought some tough guys, he has never been finished his entire career. Excellent submission defense. He can grapple with the best of the best. And we like to say around here, winning is a habit. Well, in the case of Chris Wade, he's a former state champion high school wrestler, made the finals and nationals at junior college, went undefeated to kickboxing, he went 2-0 as an amateur, and he's currently on a winning streak, and he had a winning record in the UFC. The guy is a very good talent, and the money line has him priced about right at minus 400. A little chalky for my liking. It'll be a parlay piece, one of my favorite pieces on this card, but kind of hard to bet it straight up with minus 400 numbers. Now, my concerns for Chris Wade, he does have a low finish rate. Eight of his last nine fights have gone a decision, so you're depending on the scorecards. His boxing defense could be a little bit better. He's a guy where he has so much faith in his chin, he doesn't mind getting rocked a few times, so his hands are a little bit low. He'll take a few punches he probably shouldn't take to get in close. So I'd like to see him get his guard up a little bit, have a little better head movement. Okay, as for Kyle Bochniak, who hails from Boston, Massachusetts, it's story time here at MA Fight Club, so get yourself ready for a nice little story about a guy that you may or may not have heard about. So in high school, he started to have problems with drugs and alcohol. He ends up overdosing from prescription pills, spends a week in a coma, he comes out of the hospital, stays on a bad track, ends up in jail, and here's where the story gets very interesting. While he's in jail, the guy who's locked up in a cell next to him, he ends up finding out that's his biological father. He's like, what the fuck, dude? I didn't even know this guy. Here I am in jail. His father left him when he was two years old, left him and his mother, and he finds him of all places in the jail cell next to him. He goes to his next like parole hearing, probation hearing, and convinces the judge to please let him out as soon as possible and to give him a five-year probation sentence instead of giving him time in jail. And he gives a heartfelt story to the judge about how, listen, I just met my biological father who's in the cell next to me. I don't want to be like this guy. Please give me a chance. I want to turn my life around. And the judge is like, you know what? I believe the kid. Uh, I'm going to give him a chance and gives him a long five-year probation sentence instead of putting him in jail longer. Upon getting released, he moves out of town, moves down to Hartford, Connecticut, takes a welding job, 
He's got himself on his feet. Life is going well. While coming home from work one day, he walks by a small gym called Broadway Jiu-Jitsu, which is where he still trains. He goes in there for a random session, and, and next thing you know, Kyle Boschnack makes a run, ends up in the UFC. Now he's currently at PFL. He went pro in 2011, so he's been a pro for 11 years. He fought in the UFC from 2016 to 2019. He had a 2-5 and five record in the UFC. He also fought for CES, and most recently he fought in XMMA before the PFL. He did earn Friday Night Honors in 2018 versus the beat Magomed Sharapov while in the UFC. His prior opponents, he fought Bubba Jenkins earlier this year, lost by decision. He was a plus 220 underdog. Some prior fights, he fought Sean Woodson in the UFC 2019, lost by decision. He fought Hakeem Duwadu 2018, split decision loss in the UFC. And then he fought Zabit Magomed Sharapov, 2018 decision loss in the UFC. I would implore you to watch the fight if you want to get a glance at how crazy this guy Kyle Bochniak is. He went in there as a late replacement. He was undermatched. He was undersized. Every which way you could imagine it, he was going to lose the fight. But he went out there, gave a great show, gave Zabit Magomed Sharapov all he can handle. And the guy fights with a lot of passion. That's one thing about him. If you bet on him, he gives you your money's worth. Now, the things I like about Kyle Bochnak's game, number one, he's very active. This will be his third fight this year. Over the last five to six years, he's fought very good competition. He's very durable. He's never been finished in a mixed martial arts fight, which is notable because he doesn't fight soft. The guy doesn't back up. He wants to engage. He will get hit, and he will deliver punishment. So he has an incredible chin. And considering he's been in the octagon with guys like Charles Rosa, Jeremy Kennedy, Zabit Magomed Sharapov, Sean Woodson, and again, never been finished. And last but not least, probably his best quality is he fights like a damn animal. He's the kind of guy where he will push his opponent, he will force the pace, he will test the manhood of who he's fighting against. And so from that standpoint, he's always a good fighter to watch, and he's very entertaining. Now, my concerns for Kyle Bochnik, very low finish rate. He has been to 10 straight decisions. So on one side, very durable, good cardio, but no finishing ability. His last finish was six years ago in CES via rear naked choke. So most likely this fight probably finds its way to a decision. Chris Wade is a good fighter, not amazing finishing ability either. So the numbers suggest to us we're going the full distance. And one more concern for me for Kyle Bochnak. Over the last nine fights, he's just below 500. Not a place you want to be in. And that's a bit of a theme recently in his career. Very inconsistent. Fights like a motherfucker, yes. And will fight hard for all three rounds, but can't seem to find himself a victory, especially against higher level guys. The fights we watched every now on this film, we watched Wade vs. Palmer from this year, Wade vs. Jenkins from last year, Wade vs. Makachev from 2016, and Wade vs. Schulte in 2018. We also watched Bochniak vs. Magomed Sharapov in 2018, Bochniak vs. Woodson from 2019, and Bochniak vs. Jenkins from earlier this year. If you want to watch any one of those seven fights as part of our free video library, just take a gander down below here on YouTube, look in the description, you're going to see those seven links available. So in summary, I'm going to be taking Wade to win the fight at minus 475, minus 410, minus 500 range. It's going to be a parlay piece, maybe one of my favorite parlay pieces on the entire card. I think he's better than Kyle Bochniak every which way, shape, or form. But if you want to go dog shopping or dog hunting, Kyle Bochniak is always live. The guy's going to give you a great effort. Wade will get hit. That's always a concern for me. But Wade has an amazing chin, so he should get through it and weather the storm. At minus 475, parlay piece. For prop bets, minus 230 for the fight going to decision. We talked about why it should go to decision. Not a bad spot, a little chalky, but again, maybe a piece to parlay if you're a little bit scared about choosing a winner here. By decision, minus 140 for Chris Wade. By decision, plus 550 for Kyle Bochniak. Kyle Bochniak has a shot to win. Plus 380 is nice, but if you want to get a little juicy there and spice it up, plus 550 is a little better. I'm not a mathematician, but that's more plus money, more value there. In any case, I think Chris Wade gets his hand raised and wins the fight by decision. That's your breakdown, guys. The first fight to open the main card is going to be a heavyweight clash between two Brazilian fighters, Renan Ferreira, who goes by La Problema, and Clayton Abreu, who goes by White Bear. He's 16-5 and overall, 2-2-1 two, two and one in his last five fights. He's a big underdog here at plus 300 on the main line. He's out of Deerfield Beach, Florida, 29 years old. Six foot two in height with a 75 inch reach, and he trains out of the world-renowned American top team. As for Mr. Ferreira, he's nine and two overall, four, oh, and one in his last five fights. A big favorite here at minus 420 on the winning line. He hails out of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, 32 years old, six foot eight in height with an 85 inch reach. Yes, six foot eight in height, one of the tallest mixed martial artists in the world with an 85 inch reach, and he trains out of Team Noguera. There's gonna be a 10 inch, almost a foot difference in reach on the plus side for Ferreira, and a six inch advantage as well for Ferreira. That is going to matter when they're on the feet. And on the feet, Renner Ferreira is the superior boxer, striker. That's where he works best, works behind his jab. And again, with a 10 inch reach advantage, you damn well should be working behind your jab. His striking has improved. At 32 years old, he kind of got a bit of a late start in the game, only 11 total mixed martial arts fights. So you see the boxing improving with each fight. And at 32 years old, he's kind of a baby in the heavyweight division, a lot of time still to improve. And it should be noted, both guys are coming out of very good gyms. Team Noguera down in Brazil is an excellent gym, maybe one of the top two or three gyms in all of Brazil and of course American top team in Florida is American top team. Now looking at the votes on Tapology, not to my surprise, Ferreira is a big favorite getting 96% of the votes, which matches up with the money line. I am going to place a bet on Abreu. I do think Ferreira probably wins the fight. I don't love everything I've seen from Abreu recently, but with this kind of a money line, what value are you getting out of minus 400, minus 500, minus 600 kind of range with Ferreira? 
when you've got a guy at plus money and a bro who has a ton of experience, has fought in the UFC, this seems to me like the perfect setup. If you like underdogs, if you like plus money, continue to watch this breakdown. I'm gonna try to convince you that Abreu has a chance to win at plus 400, plus 500 range, which is great return. Okay, let's talk about Renan Ferreira first. Born and raised in Brazil, no amateur record. He went pro 2013. So he's been a pro for about nine years, but hasn't had a lot of fights. So hasn't been very active during his professional mixed martial arts career. He fought in LFA part of the PFL. He has a 3-0-1 record in the PFL. His last fight was against Jamal Jones, 2022, earlier this year. He won as a big favorite, as a minus 850 favorite. We can all agree, Jones is a bit washed up and a bit chinny. Matter of fact, he got KO'd in his last two fights, and his last five losses, he's been KO'd in all five of those last five losses. When it comes to Jamal Jones, it was not by surprise that Renan Ferrer knocked him out. And you've got to imagine with the PFL, isn't it in their best interest to pair up fighters throughout the regular season where their favorites, the ones they want to see go deep in the playoffs, can win and beat up their opponents? It seems like the PFL has kind of put Ferrer in a very good situation to get some wins against some pretty easy opponents, if you know what I'm saying. And Jamal Jones was one of those guys. His prior opponent before that, same kind of deal, Stuart Austin. He fought him last year round one ko win he came in as a minus 405 favorite now austin he was supposed to fight in this card he backed out last minute and the guy's just simply not very good a matter of fact of his eight losses for austin that is seven of those are by ko so the guy doesn't have a very good chin if he fights a guy like Renan Ferrer, what's going to happen a knockout and that's what happens in round one and one more fight to talk about carl Semenatafa, 2021 just last year a decision win on tapology you're just scrolling through thinking oh decision win he came into that fight as a minus 455 favorite against this guy carl Semenatafa. carl is 12 and 14 overall the dude has a below 500 record he's on a five fight losing streak he's lost eight of his last 10 fights now here you have this matchup against Renan Ferreira just last year. You would think Renan would probably take him out, finish him. Nope. Goes the full distance. A matter of fact, Renan Ferreira drops round three. This guy, Carl, takes him down in round three. Ferreira shows some cardio issues, can't get back to his feet. And in a fight where he was almost a minus 500 favorite against a guy who has had a very hard time getting wins against anyone recently, not the greatest visual. Now, what we learned from that fight is that if you have good wrestling and you take down Ferreira, especially late in the fight when he gets a little tired, you can have some success there. We've also seen Ferrer have some issues with submission defense. So the Carl Simantafu fight, or Simantafa, I apologize for the mispronunciation. That fight is one of the reasons why I had a clue to listen. Wait a second. Could Vernon Ferrer have some holes in the game that we're all just ignoring because he's on a winning streak and he looks impressive? He's very well built, six foot eight. This guy's got all these dynamic looking physical qualities. Sometimes that'll jade you and get the smoke screen going and you're not seeing some of the reality is that maybe he has some holes in the game. Maybe he hasn't fought very good fighters, right? So moving on down to the things I like about Ferrer, the things I like about his game and what he does well, his finishing ability cannot be ignored. Seven of his nine wins have been via finish. He's an excellent striker, both with his hands, knees, and his legs. His knees in the inside clinch, nasty. And again, imagine, six foot eight motherfucker hitting you with knees on the inside it's going to be very painful he's good everywhere very explosive very athletic especially early in the fight sometimes slows down towards the end of the fight doesn't have anything that he's amazing at is good everywhere but not great at any one thing and for this size in the heavyweight division the dude's very athletic he's actually very quick for six foot eight he moves more like a five foot eight guy the guy is an unbelievable specimen now my concerns for Ferreira: number one he has fought very low level competition and then the fight against fabricio Werdum. That fight was really weird. I remember watching that fight live. That's the no contest he has in his record. What happens in that fight is he's about to get choked. He's defending it. Things look pretty good. Things seem to be okay. He fights out of it, ends up finishing this guy Wordham on the ground. Ground and pound finish, it looks great. So at first they're like, okay, TKO, win. He gets the win. Now after further review, they decide that Ferreira actually tapped out. Before he got the TKO, he had tapped out when he was fighting off the submission. And when you go back and watch the film, he does. Like he goes to tap out kind of lightly. The referee doesn't see it. It's like on the off angle on the other side, he can't see it, but it's a light tap. And then Ferreira's like, well, fuck it. Since he didn't break up the fight, I'm just gonna keep fighting, fight through this whole situation here and get it finished by a TKO. And he does. Weird situation. You could bring up a lot of things there. Was it like a low fighter IQ moment for Ferreira? Should he have been fighting the submission off more? When the guy felt the tap, did he release enough to allow him to get out of the submission? Having watched the fight in real time and having watched the replay, it seemed to me like the guy didn't let go of the submission right away anyway. You know how in fights where people have someone in a submission, the tap will happen, but they'll still hold it for a second before the referee comes over to actually like separate to make sure. In that situation, it seemed like even though there was a little bit of a tapping action by Ferreira, the hold wasn't released. He ends up somehow fighting out of it and getting a finish. So for one side, you're like, damn, very impressive. The other side of it's like, what was going on there? Not to mention, is he good at submission defense? Abreu, his compadre here from Brazil, 
Brazil has some rear naked choke finishes. Hasn't had one in a while, but he has them on his resume. And so if the fight gets to the ground, could this be a problem again? He's six foot eight, Ferrer. Very long, long neck. Easier for him to get defeated by a submission choke than a guy who's got a shorter stockier neck, just from a physique standpoint. The fight against Wordham, he technically should have had a loss in that PFL fight, but he has a no contest. Now looking at Clayton Abreu, his opponent in this fight, Abreu is also from Brazil. He went pro in 2011 with no amateur experience. He fought in Ring of Fire, Brave CF, and M1, along with signing with the UFC 2019. He's the former Brave CF light heavyweight champion. He went 1-2-1 and one in the UFC with his only win over Sam Alvey, who's actually still in the UFC somehow, kind of an ongoing running joke. He lost by a split decision to Shamil Gamzatov, maybe one of the most quality losses on his entire resume. Gamzatov is 14-1 overall, and again, that's a split decision loss. He also lost by decision against Magomed Ankalaev. Ankalaev is 17-1 overall. Again, another quality loss in the UFC. And then he had a no contest against Jamal Hill. That one wasn't so much of a good one. He actually lost that fight. Jamal Hill finished him, knocked him out in that fight. Post-fight, a little drug testing, and Jamal Hill pops for the weed. And that's kind of ridiculous now because I don't believe they even test for that anymore. Nonetheless, they take the win away from Jamal Hill. They ruled a no contest, but he lost that fight. So he's fought against some pretty good guys, some people that you recognize, people that are currently in the UFC. He gets cut by the UFC in 2021, signs out to the PFL. He's currently 1-1 one one in the PFL, and he's coming into this fight off of a win earlier this year against Adam Koresh. He went into the fight against Adam Koresh as a plus 170 underdog. He won that fight by decision. His prior fight was against Jamal Jones, and he lost that fight. Round one got knocked out, and he was a minus 190 favorite. A real bad loss is the only way to put it. If you are rooting for Renan Ferreira and you think he's going to win the fight, you're pointing to this example of how he got knocked out by Jamal Jones. And Jamal Jones, man, this guy, is he's a bit up and down. I think at times a bit chinny. Cardio's not great. Does have heavy hands. If he connects, he could hurt anyone. But watching his last few fights, he has not looked great. This fight happened last year, and Clayton Abreu got knocked out in round one. So yes, if you're on Ferreira, you have to look at this fight and think to yourself, here's a reason why he's probably going to get knocked out in this fight against Ferreira, which I can see it happening yes now some prior opponents he fought bruno capeloza in 2016 lost to him via round three tko that was way back in jungle fight 87 so both guys before they got into the pfl before the ufc days back in 2016 about six years ago now of course capeloza won the heavyweight crown last year in the pfl the one million dollar prize and his favorite to win again this year he fought and defeated johnny walker back in the day 2015 had a round two submission win over him another current ufc fighter a very respectable fighter granted it was about seven years ago but still a very good win over a good quality fighter and then he fought Matthias Shuffle, a guy who's currently fighting the PFL. He beat him by decision in 2012 back in the Piranha regional scene, like back in like regional deep roots, Brazilian regional scene down there in South America. Now, the things to obviously like about Abreu, number one, wrestling and grappling. That's what he hangs his hat on. If he's going to win this fight, it'll involve some boring control time, him being on top, him staying in control, not doing much with it, not much damage, but just control time, eating up the clock. I think in this matchup, he has a significant experience advantage. We've talked about the prior fights that he's been in. For Renan Ferreira, he's fought weak-level competition. In the case of Abreu, he's fought top contender guys over the course of his career. That could be a determining factor in a close fight. Now, my concerns for Abreu. Now, my concerns for Abreu. The optics aren't great when we're talking about his physique. It looks like he's maybe skipping some of his running days, put it that way. His cardio, not awesome either, but specifically the physique. It looks as if here's a guy who could probably be fighting at light heavyweight has kind of grown into the heavyweight division and is carrying the extra weight, that, you know, rubber tire around the waistline. So I just wonder sometimes about the discipline, how hard he's working. Is he really putting his best foot forward to be in the best shape he could be? And again, I'm just from an optics standpoint, I could be wrong, I could be off. You don't want to judge a book by its cover. It just seems like recently not doing the road work he should be doing. He's 2-4-1 over his last seven fights, and that's over the course of three years. A bit of a rough run. Now, those two wins, Sam Alvey and Adam Koresh, not very impressive. Sam Alvey is still in the UFC, but the guy hasn't won a fight like in a decade. And Adam Koresh, who he just beat recently, a prospect from Israel that we don't know much about, not very impressive, has one win in the PFL. So those are the two wins he's had over the last three years. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Ferreira vs. Jones earlier this year, Ferreira vs. Manatafa from last year, Abreu vs. Koresh from earlier this year, and Abreu vs. Jones from last year. Those four links are available down below in the YouTube description as part of our free video library if you want to check out those fights. My final few thoughts on these two fighters. Experience-wise, I give a big edge to Clayton Abreu. We talked about it. He's fought the better competition and more total overall fights. As for fighter IQ, also give them about the same grade. Neither guy is doing anything very stupid in there. They're balanced fighters. For cardio, it's tough to give either fighter an edge. They've both shown signs of fatigue late in fights. Then again, they're heavyweights. So from a cardio perspective, about the same. Finishing ability, I give a significant edge to Renan Ferrer, especially if the fight's on the feet. He's got strong hands, KO power. He could do a flying knee. He's very athletic. The guy is a machine. He's an animal. 
If the fight's on the feet, he probably gets to finish at some point within those three rounds. For Abreu, his path to finishing would be on the ground via submission, but he's not as likely to do that and hasn't had any submissions recently. So when it comes to the finishing ability, I give the edge to Renan Ferrer. When it comes to striking, I give the edge to Renan Ferrer as well. He's not only the better overall striker, better combinations, and better technique, he's going to have like almost a foot reach advantage in this fight. It's going to matter, and from a striking standpoint, Ferrer is also the better technical striker. When it comes to grappling and wrestling, Ferrer is comparable in that area. He's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy, right? But Abreu is better in that department. And if the fight gets to round two or round three late, and we get to a situation where cardio is going to be tested, if Abreu can get a key takedown and get on top of Ferrer, we've seen Ferrer have a hard time getting back up. So when it comes to grappling and the ability to maybe get a submission, I give an edge there to Abreu. The props I like for this fight, the fight not going to distance. That's an obvious one. That's minus 475, possibly a parlay piece. Because I'm concerned with Ferrer in this fight. I'm concerned that he's not an outright easy winner here. I can see this fight getting ugly. I can see one guy getting very tired, which leads to some kind of a finish of some kind. At minus 475, you're covered on both sides. Now, Ferrer by TKO, not a lot of value here. It's minus 175. Usually, you get a little more value from your props, possibly plus money. Not in this case. For Ferrer by TKO, it's minus 175. I'm not going to play it. The books are obviously suggesting that's the most likely outcome. Now, Clayton Abreu, a guy who has some submissions in his background, at plus 800 by submission to win. I'm going to have to play that. It's not likely it happens, but crazy things have happened. And when it comes to Renan Ferrer, I have a lot still I need to see from him before I'm sold on this guy being a minus 410, minus 500 favorite. He's been a big favorite in his last three fights. They've been propping him up in the PFL. They like the guy a lot. Clayton Abreu is a sneaky, decent MMA fighter, has fought some competition. So at plus 800, a spot you might want to consider, but just outright to win, Clayton Abreu at plus 330, that's the spot I'm going to bet. So once again, I think Ferrer probably wins the fight. I just lack confidence in him at this time. So I'm not going to parlay Ferrer this week. I'm not going to put him in any of my parlays. I just don't have that confidence at minus 410. And by the time the fight kicks off, any last minute bets I do, he'll be like minus 500 around that time. Even less value. So if you're looking for a dog on the card, especially in the main card, Big Clayton Abreu has a chance here. Now granted, he gets knocked out in round one. I'm looking foolish. Crazier things have happened. He's a live underdog. That's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight if you're betting on it. Alright, on up to the co-main event for PFL number five. It's a lightweight clash between the UFC veteran Anthony Pettis and Stevie Ray, who's also a former UFC fighter. Stevie Ray goes by Braveheart. He's 23 and 10 overall, 2 and 3 in his last five fights. Slight dog here, plus 155 on the money line. He hails out of Scotland, Glasgow, Scotland to be specific, 32 years old, 5 foot 10 in height with a 70 inch reach. He trains out of higher level martial arts. As for Anthony Showtime Pettis, the longtime UFC fighter and also former UFC champion, 25 and 12 overall, 3 and 2 in his last five fights. A minus 200 favorite. He hails out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he trains at a Rufus Sport MMA Academy. And should be noted, he is a partner at Rufus Sport Academy, and they also own a bar, I believe, bar restaurant in the area called Showtime. Good to see it. You like to see these fighters have a life beyond fighting in the cage and do something good with their money. So good for you, Anthony Pettis. Anyway, moving on with his details, he's 35 years old. Not that old in the context of we've been seeing Anthony Pettis now for years. It feels like he's probably 45, but 35 compared to 32-year-old Stevie Ray, only three years older. Five foot ten in height, so same height with a 73-inch reach. Pettis will have a slight three reach advantage. Now looking at the numbers on Tapology, Anthony Pettis is the big favorite getting 92% of the votes, only 8% coming in for Ray, and I do agree. I like Pettis to win the fight. I like him just about everywhere. Now, when he first came into the PFL, the last few fights, it was a rough stretch. He came in, lost against Clay Collar by decision, then lost a split decision against Roush Manfio. So coming from the UFC, kind of like the golden goose, the PFL wants to prop him up, make a run at the $1 million prize. He comes in and goes 0-2 in his first two fights. But now starting this season, his last fight, he defeats Miles Price, round one by submission. And truth be told, I kind of put a sprinkle on Miles Price in that fight. I thought Miles Price come in there and give Anthony Pettis some problems. What ends up happening is Anthony Pettis displays something that he used to be very good at the submissions now looking back at recent fights decision 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 you can't find a submission win to all the way back in like 2018 the guy has good submission skills the last few years for some reason hasn't really honed in on that has been looking to fight more than the feet he's got flashy striking skills as well the guy's a veteran no doubt about it a former ufc champion that says enough but in that last fight you saw a flash of the old anthony pettis and quite frankly at his age isn't it going to be intelligent for him to sort of fight that way to keep going a little bit longer i'm sure he would love a crack at that one million dollar prize now as for stevie ray who's 23 and 10 over Overall, coming in here off of a loss to Alex Martinez by decision. Now, not a terrible looking loss considering the fact that Alex Martinez just beat Clay Collard. Prior to that, had a grappling bout with Craig Ewers, won that back in 2021 in November of last year. Then prior to that, fought Michael Johnson, won that fight in the UFC. 
Always interesting when a guy gets cut by the UFC, but they win their last fight. So he got cut after that fight, but won that fight against Michael Johnson, who just fought recently, Michael Johnson, that is, and looked very good. He had a grappling bout with Patty Pimblett in 2019 that he won, and then prior to that had losses against Leonardo Santos, Cajun Johnson, Paul Felder, had a win against Joe Lozon, had a loss against Alan Patrick. So looking down his topology, a lot of names you'll recognize. The thing with Stevie Ray is this. You can't underestimate him. He's a decent mixed martial arts fighter. I mean, he's just about that cusp of UFC, and clearly had some wins in the UFC. Now, with that said, he's not amazing at anything either. Doesn't have KO power, not amazing at submissions, but is very durable. For Anthony Pettis to win the fight by submission would be impressive against a guy who's not easy to finish, a guy who's showed a pretty good chin over the years. Now, if it does go to decision, I'm hoping that Anthony Pettis will have enough control time, try a few submissions, maybe doesn't get them, but you know how the judges are. If you try a submission, they reward that. So if he even tries a few but doesn't get them, that'll be good. On the feet, if he lands the better strikes, that'll help him. Anthony Pettis likes to work off of his back foot, so consider that. Working off the back foot, circling, moving, a lot of foot movement, which is not bad, but if you're getting striked a lot and you're moving backwards and you're not striking back, it could be terrible on the scorecards. So Pettis will need to keep it even on the feet. He'll need to land his jabs. And on the ground, he'll need to do a few things, show his BJJ skills, look for a submission. And I'm hoping he can get another submission win here over Stevie Ray. So with Anthony Pettis sitting around minus 200, I'm going to take Anthony Pettis straight up to win the fight. I'll bet him straight up. I'm also going to parlay him with some confidence. It's not so much that I love Pettis in this spot. I just a lot of questions about Stevie Ray. He's such an up and down fighter. I think Anthony Pettis got his groove back in his last fight. Will show us glimpses of the Anthony Pettis of old. Former UFC champion against a, a guy who's sort of a journeyman in Stevie Ray, who's been all over, fought different promotions, had a decent run in the UFC. So I like Pettis in this spot. I like him at minus 200. For prop bets, I think you got to look at the fight going the distance. Even though I like the submission prop for Anthony Pettis, it's another prop to consider. The fight most likely goes to decision, and Pettis wins the fight on points. That's your breakdown, guys. Good luck. And we are up to the main card for PFL number 5, 2022 regular season. It's a heavyweight clash at 265 pounds between Bruno Capaloza, the PFL champion from last year and the $1 million winner, against Matthias Scheffel, who goes by Bufa. Bufa is 15-8 overall, and it should be noted both these guys are from Brazil, so we have a Brazilian clash between two fighters from South America. Scheffel is 15-8 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights, a plus 390 underdog in this spot. He hails specifically out of Piranha, Brazil, 29 years old, 6-2 in height with a 75-inch reach. He trains out of CM System. As for Bruno Capeloza, he's 15-5 overall, 5-0 in his last five fights, about a minus 600 favorite on most books here, so a huge favorite in this spot. He's out of Sao Paulo, Brazil, 33 years old, 6-2 in height with a 79-inch reach, and he trains out of Corinthians MMA, a very good gym. Now, as for height and reach, the same height, but there'll be about a 4-inch reach advantage there for Bruno Capeloza. As for the public votes on Tapology, is getting about all of them. He's getting 98% of the votes, only 2% coming in for Shuffle. I do agree, I like Capeloza. I mean, quite frankly, this is the perfect spot for him. Matthias Shuffle is an okay fighter. Look back at his Tapology, you're going to see a bunch of names you'll recognize. The guy has fought all over the world, has fought in some very good promotions, and at moments, looks pretty good. One of the things I like about him as a heavyweight, he's very light in his feet. He's very athletic. When he's not getting punched and he's not hurt, he's a very good-looking fighter, and so looks can be deceiving with him. He comes in there looking pretty good at times. He's light in the feet next thing you know he gets KO'd. Now, two of his last three losses, he got knocked out within the first two rounds. Ante Delizia knocked him out earlier this year in April, which is not that long ago, and that was the end of April, April 28th to be exact, so now we're talking about May, June, just two months later, coming back in here against a guy in Bruno Capeloza who literally throws bombs. That's all he does is throw with complete power, and unlike some guys who throw with power, Bruno Capeloza doesn't get off balance so much. He just has freaking stone hands. That's his most lethal weapon. Now, in return, could Bruno Capeloza get clipped here by Matthias Scheffel? I guess Scheffel has some knockouts. He's got a knockout two fights ago against Jose Rodrigo Gulk, so he can knock people out, but man, is going to be so intimidating in this spot. He's going to back up Matthias Scheffel. He's going to force him against the cage. He's going to land some bombs on him, and I expect a round one KO here by Bruno Capeloza. The reality is, from a betting perspective, we're kind of screwed. At minus 600-ish range, there's no value there. Now, I'll still parlay it in probably a few parlays, the long big parlays, just to have some fun and have some action in the fight, but to bet it, you're looking for a specific prop here. Most likely round one KO by Bruno Capeloza. I don't see it going around two. I think it takes one decent shot from Capeloza, not even his best shot, just one decent shot. Maybe even a shot that's getting blocked partially, but he grazes the side of the head of Shuffle will be enough. Shuffle just got knocked out two months ago by a lesser of a fighter here than Bruno Capeloza. Capeloza has some of the best knockout power in the entire world. Like if you put him into the UFC right now as a heavyweight, he wouldn't be champion, but the dude would be a top 10 contender. He's legit. He's got tons of power in his hands. Doesn't do much kicking, doesn't do much wrestling. He does shuffle. Shuffle likes to fight in the feet. This is the perfect matchup for Capeloza. He will perform up to the minus 600 favorite spot. Now looking for the prop bets you like the most, it would be round one KO by Capeloza and the fight not with a decision. I don't have the numbers on that, but I imagine the fight not with a distance would be like a minus 300, minus 400 spot. It's gonna be very chalky. If you're looking for the over-under prop, I'd say the fight does not go over one and a half rounds. I think within that first round and a half of the fight, something happens and at some point Bruno catches this kid 
and knocks him down and puts him out. And once he has someone hurt, Bruno Capaloza is a dog. He will finish them. And that's your breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. All right, boys and girls, just a quick summary of our picks here for PFL number five. Starting at the top, we like Capaloza, Pettis, Abreu, Chris Wade, Ante Delizia, Bubba Jenkins, Dennis Golsov, Shamil Moraes, Juan Adams, Alejandro Flores, and Brandon Lofting. Now, the ones that we have little confidence in and or we didn't do a deep dive in because of the late replacement would be the Juan Adams and Sam Key fight. I don't know what to expect there. I will not be touching that fight with a 10-foot pole. The Brandon Lofting versus Ago Husik fight. Brandon Lofting should win. At minus 700, it's just about untouchable. He looked very iffy in the last fight, so I would stay away from that one as well. Dennis Golsov versus Maurice Green. You know, Dennis Golsov is a good fighter. He's had his moments at minus 500, way too chalky, way overpriced. Maurice Green has the proverbial puncher's chance. If you're looking for a dog, that's one guy to consider. Moving up to the main card, Bubba Jenkins, I like him. He tends to be underrated at times. At minus 260, I'm wondering why he's not more like a minus 400, minus 500 against a late replacement fighter, right? So this spot here also makes me a little queasy. I'm not confident in this spot. Ante Delizia versus Shelton Graves. I like Delizia a lot in this spot, but at minus 700, I have to pass. I can't bet on it. Now moving up to Chris Wade versus Kyle Bochniak. At minus 475, I'm going to take a piece of this in a parlay. I like Chris Wade. Moving up to the big dog, I got this card. Clayton Abreu at plus 330 as a dogger pass over Renan Fiera. I think Fiera knocks him out in round one. I'm going to play that prop. I'm going to do a small play on Abreu on the money line. Because, again, at plus 330, there is a chance here. At minus 410, Renan Fiera, we talked about in the breakdown, just has not fought the best opponents yet. I still have some question marks about him. And then moving up, we like Anthony Pettis. We're going to bet on Anthony Pettis. And then the main event, Bruno Capelosa at minus 500. We like him. We like the props in that fight. Now, the picks we like the most, the ones we will actually bet, and the prelim card, we like Alejandro Flores over Ryuji Koto. We're going to be betting Alejandro Flores straight up and also putting him into a parlay. On the main card, we like Chris Wade, Bruno Capeloza, Anthony Pettis. We're going to parlay all those spots and then bet Anthony Pettis straight up as well. At minus 475, Chris Wade, two chalk and a bet straight up and same thing with Capeloza. But we will parlay them with confidence. And that's your breakdown, guys, for PFL number five. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. Leave us some comments and we'll see you guys soon. Deuces.